If you have a Bible, open it to Titus chapter 2. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. So I'm just kind of going to jump us right in um, reading Titus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are Bibles at uh, both entrances to the auditorium. Um, if you not only d- if you didn't bring one today, but if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can just have that. Um, and then also it'll be on the screen behind me. So Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. So last week we looked at the first part of Titus chapter 2, and we looked at how healthy doctrine really fuels gospel multiplication, where mature believers disciple young believers. And what we're looking at today uh, from our text of scripture there in verses 11 through 15, what we see and what our sentence is in those fill in the blanks is that we are saved by the grace of God and called to live gospel centered where we are set free to do good works. And so at the beginning of chapter two, we saw how Paul really wrote to Titus in Crete on the island of Crete to the church in Crete about God's plan to transform and grow the church. That we need older men to disciple younger men, and we need older women to disciple younger women. And although the word itself was not in those first 10 verses, what it was very clear as we looked at last week, the reality of that text was that the word itself wasn't in there, but the core truth was that it was about discipleship. And so we look at now how Paul instructed the church to be in these discipleship relationships where we're giving of our time and our resources and of ourselves. We looked at that reality last week of how that's costly, but important. And so now in our text that we just read, Paul is closing out chapter two by showing the church what it means to live according to the gospel of Jesus. That in fact, that key point, that, that key person in that text of what we just read is Jesus. That it's all about Jesus. And so Paul continues to encourage the church in Crete to have sound, to have healthy doctrine, and to make disciples. And so he's now rooting that important truth, those important truths, in the doctrines now of grace and of salvation. So what we, what we just read and what we're talking about this morning, what I hope for you to understand, if you weren't here last week, is that this is really a continuation. This is a continuation of that discipleship-type relationship we talked about. As we're looking at verses 11 through 15, the verses 1 through 10 really set up what this then is to look like. And so Paul then talks about God's grace, that God's grace saves us, And then God's grace teaches us how to live, that we're saved by the grace of God. And God's grace is his unmerited favor and his undeserved kindness, undeserved kindness that he gives to us, even though we don't deserve it, that we're able to enter into a relationship with God because of his grace 
towards us. And the reality is, is that the, the reality is that although God could have destroyed us or disowned us a long, long, long time ago, he chose to save us. He chose to save us. And in verse 11, Paul states that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so God's grace is really the, the motivation and the freedom to a life in Christ. So it's not, it's not that we'll keep on in, in, in a license to pursue a sin life, that, but that God's grace is really what motivates and frees us to live in Christ. And so Paul points us to the fact that the grace of God has appeared and that word appeared is really important there because what Paul is referencing is Jesus. That it's, it's not that all of a sudden it's just appeared among us, but that it's appeared in and through Jesus. So it points us to the gospel message and God's redemptive work in Christ. And it is by this grace that we're changed and that we're called to walk in a new life. But I think what's really important for us to understand about this saving grace is that for us, for whatever reason, our default position when, when struggling is really to believe the lie that, that God is disappointed and frustrated with us. And so our tendency is just to think, well, well, God's just probably tolerating me. God's just probably just putting up with me. God's grace has been extended to all, but for whatever reason, he's probably just putting up with me. But, but in our text is this important truth that I do not want you to miss, that regardless of you, God gave Jesus. Regardless of how great you do, how perfect you are as a follower of Christ, or how imperfect you are, God gave Jesus. And so this is the grace of God. It's the unmerited favor. It's the undeserved kindness. Like we didn't, we, we were not owed this. We were owed the wrath of God. But Jesus took on all of that so that we could receive the grace of God. So the grace of God is, is appearing in through Christ. So whether difficult days or really good days, God is at work. And he has not abandoned you in this difficult season, whatever that may be for you. And I think this really shows how amazing our God is. That in the, in the midst of our, our broken and busted up state, as he pours out his grace to us. What Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 and 8 says that we looked at in our series through the book of Ephesians is that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this is what Paul says, according to the riches of his grace. Now, I don't know if for you, when you read something in the Bible, you tend to underline it, circle it, and really want to get at what those words are saying. But for me, I've got to go deeper than just reading and moving past. And so for me, when I look at Ephesians 1, that verse 7 and 8, especially that last part, according to the riches of his grace, let's just acknowledge that it's not, it's not according to the cheapskateness of God's grace, it's according to his riches. Like, if you don't understand that, that this is what he lavishes upon you, like lavish meaning to luxuriously, what, what Paul continues to say in verse nine is that he continues to just blow you away with his grace, that, that you can't even understand the weight and the truth and the beauty of his grace for you that he has riches in his grace. 
So he's not cheap. He extends freely to all who would follow him. And that in his grace, this this rich grace that he poured out for us, think about this for a second, that, that it pleased the Father to pierce the Son to redeem you. That it pleased the Father to pierce the Son to redeem you. And so in that redemptive work, he extends, he extends grace. He doesn't extend wrath. He, he puts all that on his son that we would be able to receive the riches of his grace. So now what we have then as we walk in relationship with Christ is we have blood-bought grace that we're called to then live in. So it isn't graded living, it's gospel living. You understand the difference there? Are you tracking with me? I want you to really understand this, is that graded living is, here's how well I can do, and I better do good at that, or God will be disappointed. That's not the gospel at all. That's a false religion. The reality of the gospel is that you walk in the redemptive work of Jesus by the Father, not by the works that you're going to try to do, but by the works that he has already done for you on the cross. So what that tells us is that you and I can't do it based on our power, on our strength, and our ability. It it is his grace that breaks the power of sin so that we can walk in a gospel-centered living. And so being gospel-centered means that our gospel belief motivates us to walk in gospel behavior. So for those who live, what we talked about earlier in in our series about gospel living, for those who live outside of gospel-centered living, and and even I would say some believers who who are walking in a a weighty, non-Christ kind of religiosity, they really find themselves really separating all areas of their life into really personal, uh, me-centered categories where the belief and the idea is that none of these categories are invaded by the other. But for the gospel-centered believer, they see no such separation. Everything they do, everything they say, and everything they believe is then rooted and centered around Christ. And so Christ then, in a gospel-centered believer, becomes the peg that's just driven into the center so that out from there, the gospel of Jesus Christ invades every category. So there can be no separation. But when we receive Christ and, and he becomes Lord over our lives, here's what we need to understand is that, that the internal change is immediate. As Romans 10 says, that as we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and believe in our hearts, that change is immediate. We become then eternally bound. But the external change is over time. And so the reality is, it's not where we have, we cannot have these expectations that a brand new believer is going to act the same as a mature believer, because that's over time. And so in verse 12, Paul gives us two things to learn to reject and three things that by grace we should live in. Instructing the church that as you grow into Christ, that you would reject these things that are not of Christ and walk in these things that are of Christ. And so the first two that Paul gives that we should learn to reject, the first of the two is ungodliness. That this is literally the opposite of godliness. 
And so to be ungodly is really to act, is to act in a way that's contrary to the nature of God, to actively oppose God in disobedience or to have an irreverent disregard for God. So it's the acts of the flesh and the desires of the world that really fall into these categories of ungodliness. And then second, Paul says we need to learn to reject worldly passions. And these are things that that can even be good at first, but taken to a point where they they are elevated to God-like in our life. Our, Our attention, meaning that our attention and our affection is turned towards them, then they can become idolatry. And if we pursue these worldly passions, we're not at all in pursuit of God. And so what we would see theologically is there's really two two kind of categories of grace that there is, there's saving grace and there's common grace. And the common grace is the grace of God extended to all, all of these things in the world that, that can be good, but saving grace is from God. And so these could fall into the category of common grace. That some of the examples that can be worldly passions that are bad are money, media, relationships, our own routine, our work, our possessions, our status, and our views. So a lot of these things in of themselves are not bad. But if we elevate them to the point where they become our primary pursuit, then it becomes void of God. And it leads us really ultimately to a life of glorifying ourselves. And Paul even warned Timothy of this very issue as it was becoming dominant in the church. And he was warning him of a time that was coming up where people would no longer pursue godly living, but they would pursue worldly passions. And so in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 and 4, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the worldly passions, which are most appealing to us, this is what's intriguing to me. What what tends to be most appealing to people about worldly passions is it tends to be the ones where we're positioning ourselves and and, and making ourselves into this better version of us. Like, here's what I think the better me could look like. And so that becomes our worldly passion and pursuit, and interestingly enough, then, then because of that pursuit, the tendency then is to think about that in regards of then, how can I even pursue that better me as people would see that as a better me? And so really, that becomes our whole focus. How do I better myself and how do I look better to those around me rather than how do I pursue Christ and him more fully? And so this is what we need to understand to, to to reject worldly living, we need to understand that Jesus frees people from self-possession and makes us God's own possession. And this is by the incredible grace of God that we're called to a life in Christ set apart from the world, set apart from worldly passions. And then as Paul continues, he instructs us that by grace that we would live by these three things, that first we would be self-controlled. And Paul repeats himself for a fourth time. This is the intriguing thing about 
the church in Crete, that Paul is instructing first the elders, he's instructing Titus, he's instructing the older men, he's instructing the young women, he's instructing all of the church and the leadership to be self-controlled. And remember, this is important because in chapter one, Paul quotes one of the Cretans' prophets saying, they're, they're always liars, drunkards, evil beasts. And so Paul continues to say, you need to be self-controlled, that by the grace of God, you would live this kind of life where your personal life is under God's control, not under your control, so that we'd be able to overcome patterns and habits that, that do not reflect a godly life. And so really what that means is, is the reality of balance in a godly way. So meaning you're not a glutton, but you like good food. Meaning you're not a drunkard, but you may like good beer. Okay, so what that also could mean is that you may work out, but the self-controlled believer hasn't freaked out and built their whole life around needing to have six-pack abs, So really, then what that looks like is that they are not controlled by the flesh. Their appetite and their desires don't rule them. Their love for the Lord rules them. And their pursuits of the Lord rules them. But their other practices don't rule them. And then Paul says that by by God's grace that we would be upright that we would live as those who are upright. And one who is upright is defined by being unchanging, unchanging in standards, having correctness, genuineness, and is honest. So it relates really, as we look at being upright, it really relates to your relationships, your relationships with your family, your relationships with the church, your, rela- your relationships at work, and your relationships to your neighbors on your block. So let me ask you some questions here as we look on what it means to be upright. How do your neighbors see you? How do your neighbors see you? How does your community see you? And as you think on that, let's get a little more introspective in a healthy way and ask, how do you see you? Are you upright or are you uptight? Because I think there's a big difference. Are you self-righteous or are you pursuing the righteousness of Jesus? And Paul tells us finally that, that by grace we should desire to lead a godly life. Which really as we look at leading a godly life, the gospel and godliness are consistent with one another. They go hand in hand. So it doesn't mean that we're trying to be God, but that we are growing in the character of God, in the pursuit of God. So it's by grace extended to us when we are saved that we're empowered by the Spirit with Christ in us to grow in godly character because the knowledge of the truth of the gospel and godliness are intimately connected for the believer. So it's gospel belief with gospel behavior. So really, there's either godliness or worldliness, and the gospel truth is then what sets us free from a life lived in, in slavery to the world. And so what, I, what I've given you multiple times before, and I just want to drive this home, that maybe this would be the peg of, of which you see everything that is Christ, that as we look at the gospel, there's really three elements in the gospel that are so important 
And that's reject, receive, redeem. That as we reject our sin in our old life, then we receive salvation. And as we receive salvation, then we are redeemed and have a new life in Christ of which we then walk in. So really, these three elements become the discernment and the helpful thinking for us as believers to walk in godly life. And so really asking those three questions as we look at something, as we consider living a godly life, is this something that should be rejected, received, or redeemed? And so reject would be that we believe that it's not of God. It's not holy. It does not constitute a godly life. And then there would be received, that we can take it in as is, as good, and, and from God. And then also that, that something could be redeemed, that we take it in, reuse it, and reshape it for the glory of God. But let me just clarify this really quick, that when we look at godly living with the desire, with the desire of discerning redeeming, it's for God's glory, not your own. So we don't just take everything in as believers and just say, oh, I'm going to redeem all of this. We really lean on the Holy Spirit and say, is this redeemable for God's glory? Is this redeemable for God's glory? And so there's many things in in the church that, that are redeemed. So if you look at the time that we spend in worship, we use lights and a projector and, and instruments. You, you look at back in, in some of the early church days when, when hymns were starting to get popular, th- those were originally old bar tunes that were tweaked and redeemed for the old hymns. Okay, So that's redeeming, that, that we would take something that, the, that our culture intends for ungodliness and, and we would be able to redeem it for the glory of God. And so really, there's that difference there. That in, in this, that we would live gospel-centered. And that we would live gospel-centered where we are set free to do good works. Now, this may seem kind of like an error and an interesting sentence there to use to say that we're set free to do good works. But, but it's really not because by the grace of God to the glory of God, we're called to step into works that we would be zealous for them, as Paul says. But here's what we need to remember as we talk about good works is stepping into these. We need to remember this critical fact about good works, that first, Christ is the root, good works are then the fruit. Christ is the root and good works are the fruit. So this is the proper order, that Christians aren't Christians because of their good works, Christians are Christians because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him daily. So as I've said it before, we don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. And so really our works are the outward expression towards others of our inward change through faith in Christ. And so Paul is really instructing the church in this final part of chapter 2 in these important truths that, listen, we are set free. And then also that we need to get to work. Paul says this in verse, uh, the end of verse 13 and in verse 14. It says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us. That's freedom, that he would redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession 
who are zealous for good works. Now, I really believe that this is a very misunderstood instruction in Scripture. And not because Scripture is misunderstood, but because often we misunderstand it. Because here you have the redemptive work of God through Jesus, and then the the possessive and passionate desire of a God who saves. And nobody likes that language of a possessive God. And so what tends to happen really in that is that we love the redemptive part. We love that, that, that God would be a God of love, but we really kind of ignore or, or brush over the important instruction to do good works. That he saved us for his own self, that we would bring him glory in all we do, that our relationship would be about him, not ourselves. So let me just lay this before you, that as we've been going through the book of Titus and the, and the, the leadership of the church is instructed and the people of the church are instructed, is that God isn't calling all of you to be elders, God isn't calling all of you to be worship leaders or to be public speakers or maybe to be small group leaders, but God is calling all of you to do good works where Christ would be the root in your life that would then call you and help you to pursue good works, to bear fruit. And for some of you, that that looks, in fact, that looks different for all of you. It's not the same thing. That for some of you, that's being a mom. For some of you, that's being a leader, being a servant, being a a landscaper, being a volunteer, because all of this, as we see in relationship with Christ, is an opportunity that it would be unto God, that our lives would be an example, the living proof of what God does in those that follow him. So I just want you to consider this as we look at stepping into good works that I think often when we gather, I think we often feel kind of overwhelmed or, or we, we overthink what it might look like to apply what was taught. After just kind of hearing 30 mi- minutes on a pastor just kind of unpack a bunch of texts, we just kind of feel like we need a detox time before we look at how to step into that. But it's really my, my hope and my prayer to make it clear to you and, and remind you that what we are looking at today is a continuation of what we looked at last week. The importance of these discipleship relationships that point to Jesus. That this is the further instruction for the church. It's reminding them of this importance. And so really what I reminded you last week that I, that I shared with you is that my prayer for our church is that we would be a church committed to making disciples. But I also reminded you that that only happens if we're willing to give, if we're willing to give of our time, of our resources, and of ourselves. And this is where we step into doing good works. And so last week, what I gave you was a discipleship form that you can find in your program. And I really encouraged you to fill that out. And just to, just to clarify in that, one of the things I want to encourage you, and some of you I know um, have the reality of, of life schedule. Um, and so if, if you don't know the answer of, of when you can meet, how that could work, um, it's okay for you to leave that blank, but I encourage you to still write something down. 
that this last week we had many of these come in and I'm still kind of compiling all of them together in the hopes that we can continue to, to just get you together. Because this is what, what Paul is after. That although the church in Crete was known for, for being a very ungodly group of people, that by the grace of God that saves them, that they would step into gospel-centered living where they are set free to do good works. And so that is my prayer for us, that we would step into these discipleship relationships to make Christ the root where good works can then be the fruit of that. And so I just want to encourage you to, to fill one of those out if you haven't yet. And then to drop one in, in the bucket, whether the buckets, uh, whether it be the buckets that pass by you after service or in the blue buckets as you leave. But I just really want to encourage you and remind you of this importance that as Paul instructs the church, it's to understand that in Christ, we are set apart. In Christ, that we are set apart and called to step into these good works and be active as his church. Let's pray.